0: Basically, what I wanted to do was tell a bunch of smarty-pants Ivy League graduates who I worked with that they didn't know what they were talking about. And I took great pride in that. And I just used data
1: and just basically just told them to pound sand and shut up. But one of those Um, smarty-pants Ivy League people was Mark Zuckerberg himself. Yeah, although to his credit, he he really wasn't because he dropped out (laughs) after nine months. Right. Chamath Palahapatiya is one of the most sought-after investors in Silicon Valley. It's because he has a knack for figuring out how things work. At Facebook, he led the team that studied our online behavior and figured out how to grow that service from 50 million users when he joined in 2007 to 700 million users when he left four years later. Now, as the CEO of venture investing firm Social Capital, he's working on something different, cracking the code to understand how tech is changing our world and maybe make a few billion dollars in the process. It's quite a journey for Palahapatiya. He grew up poor, an immigrant from Sri Lanka, with a knack for numbers, a talent for gambling, and the proverbial deck stacked against him. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly what I want you to do, subscribe, so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to worry about. I visited Chamath at Social Capital's offices in Palo Alto, California, to get an up-close look at how he thinks. One of his deepest insights? Getting the right answer is overrated. Real growth happens from examining our wrong answers. Here's Chamath Palihapitiya.
0: Um, I think the way that I think about it is uh, there are really um, two kinds of companies now in the world. There are the disruptors and then there are the disrupted. And increasingly, it's really crucial to be able to understand who the disruptors are um, and then also the implications of what they're building so that you understand how to fix the disrupted. And the reason why I think that's important is that You know, too often now we go to the lowest common denominator of this like dystopian world where the robots and the cyborgs all have jobs and the rest of us are kind of, you know, trundling from one random task to another. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, And so for me, what I'm trying to build is an organization that uh, invests in some of these disruptive technologies, but channels them in productive ways, that creates new classes of jobs, that allows people to be trained in those jobs, that allows us to have an economically vibrant fabric, um, but at the same time learns from those companies that would otherwise be considered part of the disrupted class and to help them, frankly, um, be more sustainable.
1: How's it going?
0: Um, I would say that uh, it's early days. You know, when when I left Facebook in 2011 to start Social Capital, I actually drew myself a 50-year plan. Uh, fifteen years? Know, Fifty years. I was kind of, you know, I was in my mid-30s at the time, and I said, well, you know, knock on wood with good health care and, and good health, I'll be productive into my 80s and 90s, hopefully. Um, Had you ever
1: drawn yourself like a 15-year plan when you got out of college that, that took you through 30? To be honest with Facebook you. Facebook didn't exist. No, I don't see how you I didn't.
0: Have... I didn't even have a 15-minute plan. <laughs> um, but... You know, I had I had the benefit of the ability to sort of really map out what I wanted to do with my life on my own terms. And that's the first time I'd really ever had that. You know, the, the way that I grew up, it was not that. I was very much chasing and living um, very day-to-day, particu- frankly. Um, and so I thought I just wanted to be around things that I thought were so secular in nature that when you look back on them decades from now, they would seem obvious and then I wanted to be around those things. And so when I drew this plan up for myself, um, I said the first step is building the capability of creating a lot of these disruptive technologies or identifying them or being around them. And to me, that was probably going to take the first 15 years of this 50-year plan. Just to be able to identify them? Just to get good at it, to okay. become repeatable at it. You know, it's like... It's like anything else, right? It's like if you take professional sports, like the people that are the best are the ones that practice at it and divorce the result from the practice and the cool. act uh, because the, 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 the actual product of scoring happens in all kinds of random ways, but the act of
1: purposeful practice and preparation is what gets you to that moment. You say that like a partial owner of the Garden State Warriors. Exactly.
0: Um, <laughs> I do say that that way. Um,
1: and how, so if, how is that? I mean, is that something that you knew before? watching how Steph Curry and others practice or something you know knowledge that has deepened by being up close to that
0: organization yeah it's a it's a it's a great question i think it's very much the latter it's you know people want very crisp clean narratives to describe Really grandiose things that happen in the world, whether it's winning championships or whether it's starting and building great companies. And the actual facts underneath are much more complicated and nuanced. There's all kinds of tension physical, emotional, mental that go into creating something excellent. Um, and so, you know, when I, well, like I said, the first 15, the first goal was. Be good at one thing, which is to identify and incubate and nurture disruptive technologies. What I would say is actually, you know, I gave myself a 15-year target, and I think that in the first seven years, we've come to a place where I have high confidence that we know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so now, in many ways, the next chapter starts. And in chapter two... Does
1: that mean you did it in twice the time you expected? In
0: half the time? Yeah. I, 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 I thought it would be like a 15-year thing, and I think, you know, by year seven... Um, I think we have a good handle on how to do that part of the business. Um, And so in many ways now, Chapter 2 has started. And in Chapter 2, what it's about is now being able to take those technologies and apply them constructively to change markets for the better, but at the same time, take all the knowledge that you learn from them and apply it to some of the legacy businesses and see if you can't improve those as well. And the reason why that's important is I think like true knowledge will come from understanding both sets of ki- sets of companies. Meaning, you know, sometimes people want to be very dismissive of how things have been done. And in other cases, people want to be very dismissive of new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Neither are the way that you have maximal impact and success. So what I mean by that is there are many things that, you know, when I was at Facebook, that we did that were pioneering. But frankly, there were many things that we did that were just copies of things that were tried, tested, and true. And so acknowledging the fact that that the The nuances of of doing anything great will rely on both sets of information and knowledge. And so for me, now what I'm trying to do is say, okay, on the one hand, can we build the next great chip for machine learning? Yes. But on the other hand, can we actually help a company that employs hundreds of thousands of people in the world how to leverage that technology to keep those employees fully employed? That's a great challenge. Mm. And, And I think the answer to those questions will allow us to both profit from being at the seat of creating these disruptive technologies, but frankly also making sure that they're allocated in humane and ethical ways.
1: It sounds like you're saying you, you've isolated the genetic code, the DNA for disruption, in, in, in a sense. And is that what gave you, I mean, correct, correct me where I'm oversimplifying, and is that what gave you the confidence to take social capital public, in essence, and say, okay, we can, we can now do this at scale for lots of different types of companies. Yeah, in in many
0: ways, yes. I mean, like, look, a lot of this, frankly, is a rehash of the things that we did at Facebook. And what my team and I did there, as its very simplest essence, was collect lots of data. Um, We were able to invalidate a lot of lore and anecdote and replace it with fact-based decision-making. Unemotional, nominally, reasonably sounding decisions. Sounds simple,
1: but... Twitter but it, can't seem and to do your it. point,
0: like it, it's a very hard thing to do because emotions and ego can be a really destructive force inside of companies, especially when you know the social capital of an organization is built up on gut level decision making. You know this idea that you know you went off someplace and you had a vision. You know people always talk about these visions. People are described as visionaries, um, and in reality, what the best people, at least that I've seen that have changed the world, have done is just quietly iterated. Um, but that's not, again, an elegant narrative that society likes. Society wants to hear about a pithy antidote or one very precise intuition
1: on something that turned out to be massively right. It reminds me of that scene in The Princess Bride with the Iocane powder, right? Like, <laughs> when it, not, not to spoil, I don't know if it you know, yeah. it's a spoiler at this point, but basically building up an immunity over time to Iocane is what yeah. really allows you to win. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah so, so I, I just think that we're, we're in these situations where, particularly in technology, because so few people really understand it, They want to believe in this idea of divine intervention, and it's just not true. And so a lot of our success at Facebook was about the the diligence of working every day. Again, back to the the process, the practice, not the outcome. Mm. Um, And so when I started this organization, a lot of it was about rebuilding that kind of infrastructure and that capability to have very unemotional, fact-based decision-making. And so how that manifests is that whenever we invest in a company or we have an idea about starting a company, we try to implement tools and systems that allow us to understand what's really happening on the ground, meaning the actual atomic-level data that the business is generating while it's trying to do whatever it's trying to do. So, for example, you know, uh, my family's riddled with diabetes, and so uh, myself and two other people started a diabetes business seven years ago that helps large populations manage the disease. Um, and how we think about its success is actually the, the, the data from the glucometers themselves. And when you have it, what it allows us to do is realize that you can predict when somebody's about to have a hypo or hyperglycemic event. And with those insights, then you can now have a a nurse, a diabetes educator, uh, an endocrinologist, an entire support system within a hospital intervene on behalf of the patient and make sure that they don't suffer from the debilitating effects of diabetes. That wasn't divine intervention, that's just being able to collect ground truth data, being able to apply, in that case, all kinds of interesting machine learning, then being able to take that and productize it and then sell it into an organization who desperately wanted a solution Mm -hmm. um, and just keep chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And that took seven years and that company almost went out of business, but now, you know, it manages 1.2 million patients' lives. And I saw that in a board deck just this past week and I thought to myself, my dad died of the disease. So I started it in large part, in reaction to a helplessness that I felt around my whole family. Eleven of my 17 aunts and uncles have it. Amputations, glaucoma, the whole thing. And so, you know, my dad isn't here, but I think to myself, is there a kid like me who has a dad like him who may be now at the edges is probably closer to living than dying? That feels really great. And how we got to that point was not, you know, going to the top of a mountain uh, and coming up with some, you know, Idea that just came to us—it was just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, um, in an uncelebrated manner. But but having the um, the discipline and the and the commitment to keep doing it.
1: You immigrated to Canada at age six, was six it? Six, yeah. From Sweet Sri Lanka. Lanka, yeah. Tell me about your family of origin and, and the story. How did, how did you yeah. guys end up moving to Canada? My
0: um, my father came from a, a pretty intellectual. Um, class of writers and thinkers, but economically not successful. And Sri Lanka is a a predominantly Buddhist country, 90-some odd percent Buddhist, um, but very much like India in every other way, Uh, uh, a very deeply entrenched caste-based system, um, a lot of hierarchy. My mom came from um, a much more commercially successful family. Uh, and they, may, they met late in life in their mid-30s, which hmm. doesn't sound late in life, but you, know, you can imagine in the 60s in Southeast Asia, that's not what people do. They got married in their early 20s, quite honestly. In any event, um, they, uh, they got married. My mom was a nurse, my dad was a civil servant, and my mom's brother uh, helped get my dad relocated to work at the High Commission in,
1: in Canada. Was that controversial at all, their relationship at that age and being from different backgrounds?
0: Um, yeah, you know, it's so funny, like, I mean, I've never actually told anyone this, but I found out subsequently after my father died, like, he had been married once before, all this stuff that I'd never known. Um, so I don't know the complexity of his life, quite honestly. Again, in that culture, it's not the things, those aren't things were never shared with you. Right. Um, so what little I knew of him was, you know, preceding getting married to my mom was just a very headstrong, willful person who largely sacrificed his education and his path in favor of his brother, who went to college, became a lawyer, who then they became quite estranged. Hmm. Um, in any event, so my dad was- Younger a brother? Older brother. Older brother. Yeah, and, uh, and my dad was like whip-smart guy. But in any event, he, through the benefit of a relationship with my mom's brother, got, got uh, stationed in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, working for the High Commission there. And we all went over, myself and my sister, and then we had another sister born in Canada. Um, and then we were there for the full duration of his tenure. Um, but in that, the civil war between the Buddhist majority, us, and the Tamil Hindu minority, uh, really, really escalated. And uh, during that period, we filed for refugee status to stay in Canada because we, we just didn't feel like it was safe for, our, for my father particularly to return. Right. And part of the reason was in this really weird kind of twisted fate, Not only was the Sinhalese majority fighting the Tamil Hindu minority, they were also fighting an extreme nationalist wing of the Buddhists who also felt like there should be zero tolerance of this insurrection. And so if you were caught in the middle, you were being attacked by both sides. Um, And so Canada accepted us as as refugees and... uh, you know, and then it's a kind of a pretty typical hard scrabble story at that. I mean, I'm sure many, many, many others. I'm, so by no means did I have the worst of it. But, uh, you know, you, you do what you need to do. You, you, my mom became a housekeeper. She never really became a nurse. Um, she became a nurse's aide eventually. You know, my dad kind of stumbled from job to job, uh, worked at a photocopy store, um, you know, sold encyclopedias, Sold vacuum cleaners. Um, just did whatever they you know. They tried to kind of survive, and uh, and then basically told me and my two sisters like, hey, you better, you know, uh, get your shit together because
1: <laughs> there's there, there there's no <laughs> soft landing here. <laughs> <laughs> Did you internalize that at the time? I mean, oh, so, yeah. so many so many oh, yeah. uh, you know children of immigrant families oh, yeah. do and absolutely focus in on studies yeah. and saying, "Hey, my my parents sacrificed all this for me. I can see it up close." Let's. Well, I mean like like it wasn't the words, it's the actions.
0: And it's not just the good actions, but it's the negative actions, you know. My dad became pretty dependent on alcohol. Uh, it became a way to kind of like deaden the pain, I think lessen his frustration, but that also created really turbulent life inside the house, and so you had to be really vigilant and aware of what was happening at all times. Um, You know, those are the the negative things. The positive things were that, you know, they would find money for music lessons, and um, it's like, how did they do that in hindsight? I don't know, but like, I learned to play the piano, I learned to play the violin. They exposed us to art and to culture. Um, But to do that when you're sort of like, you know, living on welfare, it's like, that takes a unique personality. It takes a unique kind of vision. yeah, so so I, I felt that, you know, I, I didn't have uh, uh, a bedroom. Um, I didn't have a bed. I had a mattress, and we used to keep it in the closet of the, uh, kind of like the hallway, and I used to take it out, sleep in the living room, take put it back, you know. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it comes in stark contrast to where I went to school, because, like, by high school, I was going to the best high school that was a public school called Lisger Collegiate in Ottawa. and. Everybody that went there was, you know, quote-unquote, rich in Canadian standards. You mm-hmm. know, successful, stable families. Um, and so I was hyper-aware.
1: Was uh, it in a way that made you uncomfortable? Or had you internalized so much your uniqueness and what you were, you had set out to do that it didn't matter? Yeah, I w- less, less about how maybe special I was. But
0: um, I wanted what they had, not in a zero-sum way where I wasn't... Um, I didn't begrudge them the lives that they, the lives that they were living, um, but I just wanted it as well. You know, like We never went on vacations. Um, we never learned to do some of the things that cost money, uh, you know, skiing or whatever, uh, and that was fine with me. But mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to understand what that was like, and I wanted to be around it if I could, and mostly because you, know, you kind of want what you don't have. Sure. Um, but I never put that back on my parents. I mean, because I knew that they were, it was visible. Like, they were grinding. And, you know, they had their own sets of issues. And so I was like, you know what, like, I'll just,
1: I'll just try to take care of this for myself when, the, when I have a chance. What was your escape? What, your favorite subject, favorite activity that you really threw yourself no, into?
0: No, I mean, to be honest, like, you know, I, I ran a little casino during the lunch hour because all these little rich kids, <laughs> you know, wanted to play blackjack. It was pretty obvious that you made more money being the house, and so I was the house. <laughs> You know, you could bet anywhere from twenty-five cents or fifty cents to a buck. You know, so I'd mit- take that money during the week, and I would kind of go to these charity casinos and play blackjack. And I was a card counter back then, and so I'd be spinning up my money. I was working at Burger King at the time too, um, and I mean, I mean, you're you're listen. Like, I mean, I would love to tell you I was a good kid, but I was kind of like I was a little shady. Like, you know, <laughs> Burger King, I'd figured out what everything on the menu cost with tax. And you'd have at least 10% of the population, most people don't know this, who live an extremely precise life where when they come and they're like, I'd like a, you know, a Whopper combo, and you say $5.12, $5.12. They literally take out $5.12. And so all you need to do is be in cahoots with the guy in the back for him to make the Whopper. And you don't put it in the till. You know, so like we would come up with all these little things, because like at the edges, it would just make us feel a little bit more like empowered, like an extra $5 bucks made, the, made a difference for us back then. So that's kind of like the kid I was. I was kind of like, you know, not that great in school, reasonably clever when it came to like risk and, you know, things like card counting, math, I was quite good, um, and just kind of trundling along. And then uh, the riots in Los Angeles happened, and that was a huge moment in my life. Um, 1991, 1990. Yeah, it would have been 91. Yeah. Rodney King riots, and this is why it's so great to be Canadian. You know. Nothing happened in California. Nothing happened in America, you know. Uh, but in Canada, we took notice, and in Ontario, the government said, any minority kid who can get a job, we will subsidize and pay for it. Let's get these kids working. And really? so I applied for a job through this program. It was called Jobs Ontario Youth, J-O-Y, JOY. And, uh, you know, typically what would happen is they would place you at like a Kmart or um, Sears or something and I said no and uh, my dad had been applying for jobs his whole life and he had literally like a huge binder of like hundreds of rejection letters and uh just started the first one I started calling them and I said listen there's this thing called Jobs Ontario Youth and you know it helps minority kids get jobs and you know you don't have to pay anything and I'm a hard-working kid and I'm smart and uh, someone said okay uh and uh and so uh, I got a job at a at a place called Newbridge Networks, which is a high flying telecommunications company. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it was kind of like a test of my will because it was across town, and it literally—I mean, it did, now I sound like a cliche—it took an hour and a half by bus to get there. <laughs> but it really did. I mean, it really did take an hour and a half. Uh, and so I was just grinding this job. And uh, did that grow you up? Did getting that... paid ten bucks an hour.
1: Yeah.
0: And it and it grew me up because you know, I met this guy. Uh, who lived maybe about two miles away, but in a much nicer part of town who was the controller of Newbridge. And he could see that I was struggling to take the bus every day. And he he stopped one day, and he was like, here, come on, I'll I'll give you a ride. He drove me for, like, that whole summer. (laughs) Um, And so, like, I would just listen to this guy, and it's like, wow, this guy was amazing. His name was Sam Lake. I was like, man, this guy is... Like, this is a real person. Uh, and then when you're around the success of that place, because it was a kind of high-flying telco stock back in the 90s, and you'd see all of this wealth being created, and people driving around, and BMWs and stuff, and you're like, oh my god, what is all of this about? And so that's when I, when I kinda, kind of like got clued into you know, there's an escape here in technology that could be really profound. Mm. Um, and so I should be paying attention. And um, so I took a couple computer science classes as a result in high school never really stuck, like I was just not that low level. Like I tried to get in the weeds and and write code, and I was okay, Um, I wasn't great by any means. And frankly, I didn't have a passion for it, but I had a passion then for what it meant to build companies like that, because it sounded quite interesting to
1: me. You're studying the science of disruption now, but it's interesting to me, you come from the land of the disrupted in a way, right around where Blackberry you know, grew big. And yeah. then you went to work for AOL yeah. early in your career, yeah. running Instant Messenger, yeah. which is now dying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like officially being end of life, right? Yeah. At, at the end of this year. Yeah, Did you learn anything in particular from being in those places that, you know, in retrospect?
0: Yeah, everything. I mean, everything I, that I think I apply in success, I learned in failure or hardship. You know, the problem with, like, Success is that it's so easy to conflate luck and skill. You don't really know whether it was you, whether it was timing, whether it's the moment. And then, unfortunately, that stuff is really corrosive because it gets into your mind, it drives your ego, and it it defines, you know, your sense of self worth in, in in a way that's just not sustainable or accurate. Whereas in failure, what happens is you just like you're you're basically like at zero, and uh, you have to really unpack what was you, what was the moment. And then you have a really, if you decide to do it, have these moments of clarity where you can really figure out what your powers are and what you're really good at and where you can affect change in an otherwise difficult circumstance. And
1: um, when you internalize that, you become really powerful. When did you do that for Chamath and how did you end up at Facebook?
0: Um, Well, you know, that period, so, I mean, after I graduated from college, I. I actually took a very traditional job. I was a derivatives trader. I had kind of, even though I went through electrical engineering, I had kind of, you know, managed to get that job. And the reason I liked that job, again, it kind of like, it played on my desire to take risk and, um, you know, quote, unquote, gamble. Although I I realized later on that this, you know, calculated decision-making and gambling look really similar on the outside end, even though they're not the same thing. Um, But I had to leave that job because I just felt like I was gonna get trapped by, money. Um, trapped by money. Trapped by money. Trapped by money. Because I was poor and I needed the job and I needed the money. And then I needed their perspective on what making a lot of money meant and all of the encumbrances that it came with with respect to your behavior, your personality, with respect to sort of like the things you can do and can't do. I would have just become a slave in, in a gilded cage. And uh, I didn't want that. I, I wanted to be—I wanted to be emancipated. I wanted to like find my own path to like be able to like not have to uh, be a subject of the man. Hmm. Um, and working at a bank just didn't seem that path for me. So, so I, I moved to Silicon Valley and I worked for a, a company that small company that AOL had bought called Winamp. <laughs> I remember Winamp. And uh, you know that was like it was crazy because it was at a moment in time where it was part of the AOL Music Group. Uh, AOL was trying to get a very complicated merger with Time Warner done. There was all this antitrust scrutiny around the music space, and so we were handcuffed. There was many things we couldn't do. Um, then separately, there were all these things that we tried to do, so you know, nobody knows this, but like we created the first 99 cent download store. And we were able to do it because we had all these credit cards on file from all of the customers of AOL. And it performed beautifully. But then when you try to go to the, to the powers that be within the AOL infrastructure and convince him to launch a 99-cent download store, they all said no for political reasons. Hmm. So you deal with this failure. None of it made any sense, but then you become really resilient, and then you figure out how to get great ideas to win and how to get great ideas to market because you wanted them to win. Uh,
1: uh, I, I thought for a moment you were going to say you become really resentful, but you said resilient.
0: No, you know, honestly, like, I'm pretty much like, I'm not a bitter person, like, You know, there's like, it's just like, we all have like 90 years. Okay, let's just say plus or minus. Let's God bless us so we all live 90 years. But take 90 years and divide it by, that's the numerator. The denominator is the length of the universe, which is what? Some odd trillion years. So, like, that's, this is us. So, I just don't have time to be bitter. I like, like, life is just too short to be like glass half full. Or glass half empty, whatever it is. You know, I'm half kind of half a glass like, of anything. It's too short. Like I'm just like, hey <laughs> man, there's water in that glass. I'm going to drink it. Uh, and so I just like, I just want to do it and go for it. And I just like, I've, I'm blessed by not having that mental baggage. Um, so yeah, I didn't. I didn't get resentful. Um, I got more resilient. I got more creative. I tried to figure out different ways of telling my story. I became a great communicator. Because I needed to divorce myself from the emotion, from the politics. I tried to present facts. You know, I became great at the time of like, you know, telling narratives, uh, understanding true sort of like consumer desire. Because you practice that. Well, in the moment, I was able to practice it because I was looking at the data of what, what the product we were trying to build and then trying to articulate it to the powers that be and, you know, kind of chip away at uh, all kinds of reasons to say no. And uh, and it never happened. And then, you know, I remember getting this call in 2000, and I think it was three or four, where um, uh, somebody said, oh, uh, Steve Jobs just launched a 99 cent dollar store. And I was like... Mm, well, there you go. That's, that's just brutal. Um... <laughs> But uh, but it was in that process
1: that I just got really good at just trying to figure out what mattered and then try to tell people the truth. So in, in retrospect, this experience of failure, you never did get them to run with what was a great idea. Yeah. You've internalized as a learning exercise that taught you to be a much better communicator.
0: Communicator, um, you know, motivator, um, how to sort of like uh, lead versus do, um, how to manage through adversity. Um, yeah, it was a great training ground. AOL was an amazing training ground. The other thing that I had, which is much more practical, is I had a mentor um, and a person who took me under his wing. His name is Kevin Conroy. He runs a big swath of MGM now. And he kicked my ass. I mean, up and down every day. You know, that was when I was so afraid of him. I used to keep my phone by my bedside. And he'd just call at six in the morning. 9 a.m. Eastern, but it's 6 a.m. Pacific. And I just, and I just like, trained myself. And I could pick up that phone at 6 in the morning, deep in sleep, and it was, I was so coherent, or at least I thought I was. <laughs> you know, but he taught me how to think, uh, how, to, how to be disciplined, um, how to market. Um, and then, you know, in return for my loyalty, I think, and reasonable work done, he gave me a shot and... Uh, that's what a lot of people need. was just a shot. And I got a shot. And that's when he promoted me to run AIM and ICQ. And you know, I was in my late 20s 27. And, uh, 26, 27. And yeah. he's like, go. And uh, you know for the 18 months that I had control of that thing, I tried to do the best I can before I left for Facebook.
1: I was going to say, meanwhile, in a dorm room at Harvard. So, how, yeah. how did you end up at Facebook?
0: Um, I had known a guy. Uh, who was at the time the founding president, Sean Parker. Mm-hmm. And Parker and I had known each other in the kind of that 2000 to 2005 or six time frame.
1: When and, you got to Silicon
0: Valley. Yeah. Um, you know, he was running a business called Napster when I was at Winamp. Um, you know, we were all in the same circles. None of us had made it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. he brought Mark and himself to Washington, D.C., where AOL was headquartered, Dulles, Virginia, actually, just outside Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. had a meeting with them, and um, I went and I told Jim Bankoff, and I remember this, who who now runs Vox Media, but at the time ran AOL's audience business, I said, we should really try to buy this company. And, you know, Bankoff said, there's just, you know, no chance in hell you can buy this business. Um, because? Just the you know the capitalization structure of AOL Time Warner at the time, and you know just the downward pressure on the stock, and it was a very turbulent time. People were getting fired all the time. There was a lot of management churn, and so in that moment, you know, he and then Kevin said, "Look, see if there's an operating deal to be done." And we did a deal where we integrated Facebook and AIM together, um, and then very quickly thereafter, Sean exited Facebook, and Mark called me to unwind the deal. And at the end of that process, uh, he said, "You know, you should really think about working here." And then I kind of met the
1: other senior guys, and I said, yeah, let's take a shot. uh, Why? Because you hadn't ever worked for a really small outfit before. I mean, you went into this prestigious uh, technology company in Canada and cut your teeth there. I mean, yet you were doing derivatives training for a bank, decided, yeah, it was going to eat your soul so you wouldn't continue to work there, but it was big. You ended up at AOL, which was huge at the time. What gave you the guts to go with this little company run by this Teen? I mean, maybe he wasn't a teenager anymore, I think but just he was barely. I think he was on. nineteen. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> gut, gut? decision? Um, <laughs> One of the few that works out.
0: <laughs> uh, no, actually, you know, it was it was it was about risk management. I remember thinking to myself, you know, I had left AOL at the time, and I had been recruited to work at a venture firm, Mayfield, and um, I was getting paid what felt to me like all the money in the world at the time happy to tell you 250,000 bucks a year huge amount of money for me this was like line of sight to you know getting completely out of student debt getting my parents completely sort of like into a situation where they could afford a house you know help subsidizing some of my sisters and I had been you know half my paycheck every year until that every year was going back to my family so mm. it's not like I even was able to celebrate any of the trappings of anything. because take my salary divided by two for taxes then divided by two again and that was my effective salary um, so in any event, uh, I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, here's what my expected value is at Mayfield over the next five years. And I said, what is the distribution of outcomes at Facebook? And I basically like most of the scenarios were less than it, um, but there were a few scenarios where I could make a case that it could be equivalent to what I would make at Mayfield over a four year period and in a very, very small number of cases where it would be in excess. And I said, okay, the, the mathematical answer is that it's probably easier to just stay where I am. And then I said to myself, but if I can go there and if this thing does fail, so meaning the outcome is in one of those kind of like uh, equivalent or worse situations, what will I still have? And what I said to myself was I will have met some of the smartest people in the world and I'll be in the game. And I will have learned something about myself of whether I can do something at a really early stage scale and whether can I do this on my own uh, am I a, sort of like, you know, have I been trained now and am I ready to execute? Uh, and so I took the shot for most of those reasons. And what was funny at the time was I actually had an offer where somebody was recruiting me to be CEO of a business. Um, what kind of business? It's like some internet business. I can't even quite honestly remember. I just remember <laughs> like getting called thinking to myself, wow, maybe I could be like, you know, the chief versus the Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh but when I spent time with the team at Facebook, I was like, wow, this is, like, this is kind of like fun, and nobody knows what they're doing. Um, and I thought that's probably a place where like, I can uh, learn something. Um, and so Even if it up. fails. Even if so it fails. So maybe the lesson
1: from the whole Winamp, Winamp AOL experience, sometimes what you learn from the failure is just as important as winning, and you calculated that what you would learn at Facebook?
0: Yeah, and also, John, quite honestly, I was like, look, I've, I've never really been around something that has succeeded. <laughs> so, I mean, I know what failure feels like, and it feels okay, you know I mean, <laughs> you know? It's not life-threatening, like, life goes on. Like, you know, you try some stuff, some work, some doesn't, um, you know, you're subject to market conditions, you're subject to internal politics, and I had kind of become relatively resilient, and I just thought, how much worse could it be than that? Uh, And so I was like, yeah, I'll probably learn a lot. It seemed like, I mean, it seemed like it was the next arc after AIM and ICQ to me, right? Because I I had been so deep in that business where I could tell, like, there was something that Facebook was scratching the surface on, especially in a world post-MySpace and post-Friendster that was really unique. Um, It had just started to figure out how to experiment with algorithmic feeds. Um, And so there was enough surface material there where I was like, I'm going to learn a ton. And uh, just you know, I, I just so thought this s-
1: former cal- card counting teenager, former derivatives trader, always been comfortable with numbers and calculating risks, end up in this position with Facebook, which is the biggest data problem, yeah. you know, post Google of a Absolutely. of a generation. Absolutely. And you end up in the position of Absolutely. chief growth hacker. Yeah. You're tackling the kinds of problems having to do with uh, people and outcomes that the technology world has never really wrestled with before.
0: no. And in fact, I think what we're learning now is how complicated and nuanced these issues really are. Um, You know, when I created the growth team, I said, okay, basically what I wanted to do was tell a bunch of smarty pants Ivy League graduates who I worked with that they didn't know what they were talking about. And (laughs) I took great pride in that and I just used data and just basically just told them to pound sand and shut up.
1: But one of those smarty um, pants Ivy League people was Mark Zuckerberg himself.
0: Yeah, although to his credit, he, he really them. wasn't because he dropped out <laughs> after nine months. <laughs> right. And he was actually open to the truth, more so in a way of anybody that I've ever seen. He loves the truth. Um, uh, but again, like you know, in success you get a lot of people that conflate luck and skill, and in the early days of Facebook there were many of those people. So part of it was just decapitating their political and social capital, which happens by just telling the truth. Um, But in that, what we figured out was, um, you know, to your point, how much of a system it was. And what I mean by that is that, as much as we all believe we're individuals, we are, we all act within a range of outcomes that frankly can be modeled mathematically and be highly predicted. And um, it's no different than, you know, you must think to yourself sometimes when you go to Google and you start typing in a few letters and it instantly knows. And you think to yourself, well, is that the same search result that everybody else gets? And the answer is no. And then you must think to yourself, well, how creepy is it that Google knew what I was thinking? And the answer is, well, you probably, in a whole bunch of many other subtle ways, told them. You just
1: didn't realize it. I like how you're counting the cards in my search behavior right now.
0: Right? Um, (laughs) And so uh, I think we reduced. Uh, a lot of theoretical complexity to that simple insight, which is that um, humans are telling you in passive and active ways every day uh, what's in their heart and mind. And uh, when you collect those signals and you learn, um, you can become really good at giving them what they want, um, but then you also become really good at understanding their behavior. And now, unfortunately, in some you know, rare edge cases, in manipulating, well, one would hope they're rare, in manipulating
1: their behavior as well with, you know, this whole fake news stuff. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Is that the sort of thing that, granted, it's been a long time since you were at Facebook, but outfits like yours were set up to anticipate?
0: No. Um, You know, the fundamental thing that I want to make sure is clear to everybody is, you know, technology by design is deterministic in the following way, which is that whatever can be done and whatever is possible will be done. And what we need to do is have the moral and ethical discussions around how we prevent the broad implications of how technology can be used, not just in positive ways, but in ways that are poorly
1: understood. Are you saying it's impossible to anticipate everything?
0: Absolutely. Like, you know, I'll give you a simple example. I helped start a cancer genomics business seven years ago, which is doing incredibly well, helping people manage the fundamental problems of cancer care with precision around their specific genetic makeup. It stands to reason that within the next 10 years, we'll be able to take that profile and makeup of who we are genetically and precisely start to target things that can make us uh, sick. And then eventually someone will say, well, what about the things that could make us sick in the future. Well, what's the difference between something that could make you sick in the future versus something that could frankly just be optimized for you in the future? It's a very slippery slope. And so the type of gene editing technology that people are experimenting with today for the you know, foreseen future will be used at eradicating disease. That's
1: a fantastically positive thing. It seems but within though, the, but it, it seems almost dangerous to be able to say on the one hand, it's possible to crack the code for growth so that this technology can spread global around the world and touch everybody. But it's impossible to anticipate some of the worst uses of it that then can use this network to, to manipulate. It's almost like a Frankenstein's monster situation.
0: Yeah, and, and look, again, the thing is I want to be clear, like, we are making a lot of this stuff up as we go along. And anybody that pretends that they know or pretends that they know the future is fundamentally either lying or stupid. So you're absolutely right. Like, we are going to uncover all kinds of unintended consequences for the things that we've built. So again, you know, to use this genetics example, it will start with curing diseases that you have and it'll quickly migrate to diseases that you may get and then to things about you that you just want to change. And then, eventually, some government, whether it's us or not, will take the decision, well, you know what, I just want to create a superhuman cyborg that are citizens of my country. What do you do then? So, you know, there are all of these issues that I think we have to grapple with around technology that that we are only starting to scratch the surface of now, and they all come back to this idea of we are building things we never thought were possible, but we just have to be honest that we're also probably not well-equipped to realize the full breadth of the implications.
1: So should we regulate that in some way? Yeah, it has to be.
0: Now, the question is how. And, you know, this is where I think, like, you get this intersection of governance and politics and technology that we've never had to contend with before. You know, the last 30 years have been about unbounded gains, where technology has largely allowed things to be cheaper, faster, better, where the aggregate value creation was undeniable, with very, very few um, consequences. But now I think that has changed. And so we're going to have to really grapple with that, and that's going to require a level of conversation between governments, between companies, populations, and it is a global discussion. It cannot happen at a national level, because it's irrelevant what happens in any one country. That's why, frankly, the current political climate has to be really thought of um, with skepticism, but also uh, with um, some graveness, because, you know, sticking your head in the sand and just saying, oh, we as a country can figure this out is not going to solve it, because whatever we do, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Some other country can decide to go the other way, and so it's about creating a moral framework that everybody agrees with.
1: I hope one day in your 50 year plan you can crack the code for social disruption and hopefully we can figure it out. I mean, by the way, that, that is chapter five. Okay. So I'm glad it's in the plan. Chamath, thank you so much for all. Thanks, time. John. Thank you. My thanks to Chamath Palahapatiya. I'm John Fort from CNBC and this has been Fort Knox Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter.